And welcome to Council 4 Unplugged, the podcast of the Council 4 AFSCME Union. I'm Larry Dorman, Council 4. Alongside me are my cohorts, Zach Levy and Brian Anderson. Zach, how are you doing? Doing all right. How are you? Brian, how are you? Doing great, Larry. Good to be back with you and uh, to talk about the issues that affect uh, not only union members here in Connecticut, but uh, uh, non-union workers and and, and workers across the country. And we've got to discuss one of those issues today, and it's quite serious. It is the Janus versus AFSCME Council 31 case that will be heard by the Supreme Court soon, and we could have a decision uh, as early as this spring. And this is a case that would nationalize the so-called right to work, although I call it right to work for less law. And and Brian, if you could lead off and explain what right to work uh, really means. Uh, What what it means, Larry, is exactly what you said. It's a a right to work for lower wages. Uh, The name is a lie. It has nothing to do with an actual right to work. No one has ever been uh, denied a job because they worked in a uh, union shop. And basically what's going on is there is an organization called the National Right to Work Foundation. It's funded by the Koch brothers, by the Mercers, by the Waltons, by the folks who make up the the wealthiest 10% of this nation. And it's an attempt to force down wages, to force down uh, employers' costs for labor, and in doing so, it impoverishes folks. The argument is that um, workers shouldn't have to pay union dues based on the uh, supposition that the union might do something that that individual worker disagrees with. Um, the, The law currently around this is based on a case that went before the Supreme Court called Abood. And what Abood basically said was folks who work in a union environment make a tangible financial benefit over those who don't work in a unionized workforce. Therefore, those folks, if they're co-workers by majority agree to have a union, have to pay some small amount into maintaining that union. Zach, what can you add to this? Well, I think Brian, Brian uh, hits the nail on the head when he talks about you know this, this Koch brothers attack and these well-funded attacks, because if you look uh, what this case is, which is funded by those groups, by uh, the National Right to Work Foundation, by the Koch brothers, that you oftentimes uh, see that they are the ones who are funding these people, paying for the legal fees, uh, because essentially they've, they view this as a national way to do what they've been doing state by state and in 28 states across this country, um, where they go in and basically pay a lot of money. Uh, you know, the Koch brothers are couple election cycles ago said that they were willing to spend $900 million to get people that they wanted and elected. So they go in state by state, they get a governor like Scott Walker in Wisconsin with a a conservative uh, legislature, and then they pass anti-worker legislation that is really just a continuation of of this this systematic attack on working people. And uh, it's like, you know, in Connecticut where we see these charlatans give presentations to our legislature about how terrible... Uh, working people are and how terrible um, you know the, the unions have made everything and in reality what we've done is bring everyone up with us you know there's a reason why in Missouri and in Alabama and in Arkansas they have a lower standard of living it's because everyone there is making poverty wages because they don't have the type of union protections that we have in union states uh, in New England 
Brian, you know, you mentioned before that this is a, a well-funded uh, historic attack on unions, and you mentioned uh, uh, really rich people, uh, really big businesses that are standing behind this, and you mentioned the Waltons, and I just want to make clear for our listeners, we're not talking about the Walton family of uh, John Boy you know, television fame. We're talking about the Walmart Waltons, a virulently anti-union uh, family uh, who have put their money uh, behind all kinds of efforts to to uh, break the labor movement. By the way, a, a family that uh, got billions in a new tax break and have decided to lay off thousands of workers by closing stores, uh, which is really showing how that money is, is trickling down as they said it would. Exactly, Zach. All, this, all the Sam's Club workers that the Waltons employer being laid off. The Waltons are five of the ten richest Americans, and it's stunning that they would spend uh, billions of dollars in their money, of their money to screw down uh, the wages of the average American. Um, when I was a kid, uh, about one in six Americans were working poor. The U.S. Census found in 2013 that now one in two American families are working poor. That is devastating. That's a road to disaster for our whole consumption-based economy. It's a road to disaster for our country, for our democracy. And, and Larry, you talked about the, these folks who are doing this, they go to great lengths to masquerade and hide. Uh, they have recruited uh, an Illinois state employee named Mark Janis, who, is, uh, who has a very strong religious bent and doesn't want to pay his union dues. He was recruited in Illinois for this case. Uh, it's not like Mark Janis has the money to go to the U.S. Supreme Court and all the federal prior courts to push this. It's not like Mark Janis is part of a group of workers who have pooled their money together to push these cases. These cases are pushed by billionaires uh, seeking that ever lower wage. And when we talk about the implications of this case, we need to make it really clear that um, right to work for less is, is, is nothing more than an effort to defang and defund labor unions. Uh, and labor unions, of course, represent average, everyday working people. And labor unions lift up wages and benefits and working conditions in this country. And I think um, both of you can weigh in on this, that uh, when unions are weakened, as they have been, you know, as we all have to acknowledge, uh, um, when unions are weakened, when their ability to bargain for a better way of life and a small slice or piece of the American dream for workers, when that ability is in jeopardy, um, all workers suffer, and there seems to be overwhelming statistical evidence to show that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at, at the statistics that studies have found that in uh, union states like, like Connecticut or Massachusetts or you know basically a lot of New England or the West Coast right now, that the workers are covered, a much higher percentage are covered by union contracts. Uh, you know, 17.5% of workers in union states versus 7% of workers in right-to-work states. Now, not even getting to the economics of it. Just the basics of what that means is things like paid sick days, uh, paid holidays, uh, vacation time, but most importantly, a say over their working conditions. That these workers now in, in union states, you know, and I think something we should be proud of, that we allow our members uh, to stop if they are ordered to do something unsafe, to have the ability to say, no, that is wrong, we're not going to do that, uh, versus in, in, in right-to-work states where they have to 
uh, they basically have to do it or they get fired since they don't have those protections, which is why, uh, you know, it's a contributing factor to why you see right-to-work states uh, have, you know, over 50% more workplace fatalities than you have in, in union states. And those that's 50%, you know, higher. Those are people that are going home to their families, let alone being able to provide for them. That That's them going to do a job the way all of our members do. And simply because they live in a different state than us, not have the ability to protect themselves. Uh, but when we look at wages, I mean, it, it, it's not even close when you talk about um, lifting up all boats. And, and it's something, you know, it's like I said before, it's why we have a higher standard of living because everyone gets paid more here than they do in, in right-to-work states. Uh, Brian, before you jump in here, I, I do want to uh, reinforce some of what Zach just uh, said. And these statistics are kind of alarming. Not kind of alarming, they're, they're alarming. Um, infant mortality is 12.4% higher in right-to-work states. Uh, spending on per pupil on elementary and secondary education is 33% less in the so-called free bargaining states, that is right-to-work states, where union members opt out of having to pay dues. Uh, as Zach mentioned, uh, workplace death is more than 50%. It's actually 58% higher risk in right-to-work or free bargaining states. And uh, here's another punch in the gut. Um, worker Working families in free bargaining or right-to-work states, um, on average, earn $8,740 less per year. So what's your reaction to that, Brian? It says a lot about the importance of having uh, a union card. Well, Larry, you, Zach, you nailed it. I mean, life is better for the average citizen in a state that allows unions to exist. And right-to-work laws are about crushing unions. Um, the, the statistics you guys just mentioned speak for themselves. There's a great study that's done by uh, an online magazine for businesses called 24-7 Wall Street. And uh, in 2015, November, they released a study on the quality of life of the 50 states. They found Connecticut, the second best state to live in. And they found Mississippi, the worst state to live in. Now, CBIA, the Connecticut Business Industry Association, that is the uh, lobby for the corporate conservative class in Connecticut, touts Mississippi as if it's some kind of uh, heavenly place to live. But uh, when you look at the stats for Mississippi, uh, the mortality rate the life expectancy is five years lower than Connecticut's. On average, Connecticut residents live to 80 years. In Mississippi, they live to 75 years. In Connecticut, the poverty rate is 10%. In Mississippi, it's over 21%. Uh, Larry, you just cited the education statistics. The thing that will make the difference on whether your kid has a good job or doesn't is directly linked to how much your state and local government spend on education. When there is a 30% gap between states that are alleged right-to-work states versus states like ours that are fair share union states, uh, it, it speaks for itself. Our kids have a much better chance at a better life. That's why our demographics on happiness, on health, are all better than the uh, right-to-work states. Well, I think it's also, you know, one of the things that's important as, as people look at this and as we face a, a post-Janus world uh, is that when, when I was looking up uh, some statistics for the podcast, 
you know, I kept running into this myth uh, that, you know, like clockwork, every right to work website uh, had, which is that, you know, oh, do this and it's great for business. You know, and we see it up at the Capitol all the time that, that these out of state rich guys come in and they go, if you just get rid of these unions, the state's business climate will, uh, uh, will improve. And that is just completely false because, you know, like you said, it takes $8,000 average wage out of, uh, out of the average worker, not just union worker, but average worker across the state. So what that means is that people now have, not only are they taking less money home while they deal with things like bills, student loans, mortgages, phone bill, internet, they also then can't go out and spend, which means businesses aren't having customers. You know, even Henry Ford, who is no, you know, liberal icon, figured out that if he just paid his workers a decent amount of money a day, then they'd go out and they'd buy his cars. You know, so all these people that are coming in and saying, we need to take money out of the economy, take spending power out of people, people's wallets, and that will improve business. There's almost no evidence that shows that that's the case because what you're doing is taking money out of the economy. AFSCME did a, a, a study after Wisconsin where it took almost a billion dollars out of the economy. I mean, that's a billion dollars that businesses aren't seeing. And so it's this myth out there that, you know, for some reason this is good for business. And the only way it's good for business is that they get to pay workers less while making bigger profits for the guys on top. Well said. Uh, well said, Zach. And again, um, this, this case, Janice versus AFSCME, Council 31, which is, uh, as Brian mentioned, that is the AFSCME uh, organization, AFSCME Council out in Illinois. This case uh, is being heard, will be heard by the Supreme Court this session. Uh, we could be looking at a, a decision in June. And um, Brian, as you said, this obviously has consequences for uh, every worker in Connecticut at a time when rising inequality is a real problem. And I kind of wanted you to connect, if you would, the, the Janice case with the implications of, of a labor movement uh, that, that has been declining and, and what that means for overall uh, income inequality. Yeah, Larry, um, the, the stats that Zach was just citing are right on target. Um, America has been the envy of the world for the last 80 years because we have a strong consumption-based economy, which means that the average worker used to get enough money to be able to buy a house. Not, not a great house, but, but a, a, a sufficient house to buy a car every couple of years, to buy all the things that come in to uh, that house, refrigerator, stove, television. Now we're seeing the loss of that. And that starts a downward cycle. Uh, that leads to people who make things being laid off, people who work in retail selling things being laid off. And, and a lot of this comes back to the attack on unions. Unions used to be uh, at 30% density, the American workforce. Now they're about 10%. That didn't happen by accident. That happened because of a well-planned corporate conservative strategy to destroy unions. And the right, alleged right-to-work uh, laws are the biggest part of that. I think two stats that are uh, very indicative of the importance uh, of unions in the average American's life is that if you compare two union workers, uh, two workers, one union, one not union, the union worker is 79% more likely to have health insurance. Uh, the union worker is also 76% more likely to have a pension. 
um, they get 20% higher wage. Clearly, uh, unions make a great difference, a great positive difference in people's lives. And that difference just doesn't apply to the union workers. It applies to workers that work around them. It forces up the bar. It makes workplaces that aren't union workplaces have to pay their, their folks more. Well, I think that that's absolutely and, and true. And Brian, you make up a good point when you talk about how, you know, at our, at our heyday, at the union's best moment, we were at about a third of the, the employed workforce. And with just a third of our workforce being unionized, a third having a, an ability to, to raise wages not only for themselves uh, but for everyone, we were able to build one of the strongest economies this world has ever seen. We were able to lift people out of poverty. We were able to lift, uh, 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 lift people that didn't have chances and give them opportunities because they now had a middle-class wage. We were able to build the American dream. And when, when we look back at all these people talk about the American dream, they talk about, you know, the Rockefellers and the, the Vanderbilts and these, these people that just made billions of dollars by basically stepping on their workers. And with just a third of the workforce unionized, which is, by the way, like if you look at Europe and you look at Canada, it's like 80 percent, 75 percent. So with half, we were able to be that productive of a country, that economically uh, uh, strong. And imagine if we were able to get just up to 20%. You talk about inequality, seeing that disappear. Because on any graph that you, you, you look at, you can see it diverge right around in the 80s when the right-to-work movement kicked in, when, when Reagan and the PACO strike, where all of a sudden you just saw the wealthy start getting much wealthier and, you, and working people, because there were less unions, staying the same or going down. And that's been one of the biggest crises uh, of our country and of our time that uh, this just continues to further. Zach Levy and Brian Anderson of Council 4, uh, you guys break it down better than anyone, and I uh, appreciate your being here on our Council 4 Unplugged podcast. We are going to take a quick break, and we're actually going to uh, talk to one of our members, a, a paraprofessional, um, uh, and we're going to be talking about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy. Uh, we celebrated uh, his birthday this week. We have uh, events coming up to uh, commemorate uh, his legacy and to also uh, um, pay tribute to the struggle of the Memphis sanitation workers. And that's what uh, we're going to be talking with our next guest, uh, Claudine Wilkins-Chambers, about. So we'll take a quick break and be right back. Thanks for listening to Council 4 Unplugged. And we're back here on Council 4 Unplugged, the podcast for our Council 4 AFSCME union. We've been talking about uh, the potential nationalization of right to work, which is a, an effort by uh, corporate conservative politicians and their, and their funders to defang and declaw and defund labor unions and, by extension, all workers. And our special guest this afternoon to talk about uh, not only right to work, but uh, one of the early opponents of right to work, Dr. Martin Luther King. And our guest is Claudine Wilkins-Chambers. Claudine is a New Haven public school paraprofessional, longtime paraprofessional, and president of our AFSCME Local 3429 bargaining unit uh, here in New Haven. Welcome, Claudine. Thank you, Larry. It's great to have you. And how many years have you been a paraprofessional? All my life, about 43. Wow. Thank you for your service. 
You're welcome. That's pretty awesome. Uh, Claudine, I know you uh, grew up um, very familiar with Dr. King, and, and one of the things that interested me, we just celebrated, of course, the holiday, uh, marking his birthday, and we have another important commemoration coming up that you and I will discuss, but uh, Dr. King was a vocal uh, and powerful opponent of right to work. Uh, he recognized it for the scam that it is, and I think you have a, a statement that Dr. King made in the 60s, and uh, if you wouldn't mind reading it to us. I'd love to. In our glorious fight for civil rights, we must guard against being fooled by false slogans such as right to work. Wherever these laws have been passed, wages are lower, job opportunities are fewer, and there are no civil rights. We do not intend to let them do this to us. We demand this fraud be stopped. What's your reaction when you uh, read that and hear that again? I know you're familiar with that statement. I really become very angry, Lara, because people have the right to work for fair wages, good health care, and a good retirement package. And when that doesn't happen, the American workers are defrauded. Every right that we have will be stripped away from us, and it really scares me. And my colleagues and I talk about it all the time. What would happen if this right-to-work piece goes forward? It is our hope that we would fight with all our might and energy to stop it. I think we will, and uh, we'll have good union leaders like you helping us do that, um, because every day you and your co-workers show up, you're, you're here for the school children of New Haven, and um, you're able to actually fight for, for them on their behalf and advocate for them and the work you do because you belong to a union? Yes. I think unions save lives. It certainly saves jobs. It protects people in the workplace. Because if, I can't imagine what our lives would be like in America if there were no unions to protect us. And again, because our theme is both right to work and, and the legacy uh, on the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, uh, which was April 4th, 1968, uh, it's, it still really blows me away to... Um, go back and read about Dr. King and see how passionate he was in terms of the fight for not just for civil rights, which is, is well documented, but his fight for labor rights. I, I think better than anybody I've, I've ever had the um, experience of, of coming to understand and, and read about, he got the connection. He, he knew there was this intrinsic, unbreakable connection between labor and civil rights. And, um, you know, you grew up uh, with his teachings. Maybe you can reflect on that. I did. It wasn't an easy time to grow up. I grew up in the South, Larry. And it's not only civil rights, it's human rights that are being violated. Uh, and it was very segregated at the time. Blacks went to schools for blacks. We walked past a white school to go to a black school, which was miles away. We walked in the cold, rain, sleet, it didn't matter. We had to walk to school. Um, and it was really difficult, and I couldn't understand a lot of things that were happening and my parents explained it to us, but it was still very painful. And my feeling now is, have we really left that space? I feel like we flipped backwards and we're back in that space again. That's interesting because it really makes Dr. King all the more relevant uh, 50 years after that, that his, his tragic murder. Um, his, his words are, are truer than ever, it seems to me, again, about labor rights, about human rights, about civil rights, and, and the connection um, that binds those causes. It's, it's like the dream he had. Some of it, we'll live in it. Most of it, we're not. And it hurts to know that what he died for 
are trying still with all their might to take it away. But I really think we cannot let them take it. It belongs to us. I agree, and that, that includes um, labor rights, which is why we're, we're fighting right to work. Um, it includes voting rights um, and, and, and other rights that empower um, everyday uh, working people um, to have a stake in, in, in the economy, to have a, a somewhat of a comfortable place uh, in society. I and mean, that's what Dr. King wanted, wanted uh, everybody to live in dignity. And he wanted them to live in peace, everybody to be treated fairly. It didn't matter about what ethnicity you were, what school you went to. He just, people should have been living in peace then. And now it's more unrest than ever because we have leaders that shouldn't be leaders that's leading our nation, and it's frightening. Let me ask you, Claudine, or a comment, rather, ask you for a comment. On February 1st, we, our union, uh, AFSCME Council for New Britain, um, and AFSCME unions uh, across the country actually will be hosting um, a special ceremony uh, again on February 1st, and maybe you could talk a little bit about it. Um, it's the I Am 2018 campaign, and it's um, specifically uh, designed to remember two sanitation workers from the uh, uh, from the Memphis sanitation strike in the 60s. Would you elaborate a little for us? Um, yes. Back in the 60s, there were two sanitation workers. Let me back up a little bit. The people had been telling the city that the truck was malfunctioning and it needed to be replaced. They ignored it. So on this particular day, there was torrential rain, and they allowed the white workers to go inside out of the rain the two African-American workers were not allowed inside out of the rain, so they got up in the truck to protect themselves from the torrential rain. What happened was the compactor started all by itself, and it crushed the two of them. When they realized that they had been crushed by the compactor, what happened was they didn't call the family members. They took them to their houses and dumped them on the lawn. That is uh, as terrible as it sounds. There's, there's no other way you can, you can talk about that. And um, it's 50 years ago, but it could be today. It really could be today. It could be. And, today. and I wouldn't be shocked if it was today or tomorrow, because we are living in a society with sick-minded people, people who have the brain of a jellyfish, literally. So what we're going to do, um, and, and the two sanitation workers um, Claudine is, is talking about, uh, their names were Echo Cole and Robert Walker, and they were, uh, as, as uh, Claudine described, there's no other way to say it, crushed to death um, through the malfeasance of, of their employer, the city of Memphis Sanitation Department, uh, a mayor who was uh, wouldn't come to the table to let the workers have their union, which, thanks to Dr. King's intervention, they eventually got, um, asked me local 1733. So at any rate, we are going to have a moment of silence on February 1st, uh, around 4.20 p.m. at our Workers' Memorial uh, in New Britain, Connecticut. Uh, that is a memorial for, it's for Connecticut workers who have been uh, killed on the job, but uh, we're going to have this special ceremony. February 1st was the date uh, back uh, in 1968 that Echo Cole and Robert Walker uh, lost their lives, crushed in, uh, in the back of their sanitation truck. It was around 4.20 p.m., and we will have a moment of silence. And I know, Claudine, you and some of your members from Ask Me Local 3429 will, will join us in New Britain, and we appreciate that. We will definitely be there, Larry. And Rain it, or shine. Yeah, and it reminds us that um, 50 years really wasn't so long ago, was it, and that we've got to renew the fight uh, here in 2018. 
No, it wasn't so long ago. It seemed as if it was yesterday or last week. Because of what's happening now, uh, we have to stop it at all costs. We really have to stop the nonsense. Well said, and we'll look forward to seeing you on February 1st. Uh, and again, if you want to learn more about AFSCME's national uh, campaign and moment of silence um, in honor of Memphis, the Memphis sanitation workers, you can go to iam2018.org. Uh, this has been a powerful uh, show. Thank you for joining us, Claudine Wilkins-Chambers, New Haven Paraprofessionals. Appreciate you coming on. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And we'll see you on February 1st, and we'll see you all, or and you'll all hear us soon on our next Council 4 Unplugged content, uh, podcast. And don't forget to look us up at council4.org. You can also find us on Facebook at Council 4 AFSME, and you can uh, tweet at us at uh, AFSCME, A-F-S-C-M-E-C-T-4. And for Council 4, I'm Larry Dorman. We'll see you next time. And until then, keep it safe, keep it dignified. Thanks. Thanks.